I feel like we're here to worship today, aren't we? Amen? Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning is from the Gospel of John. And this is from a section, and I'll, and I'll mention this in a little bit in more detail, a section from the very end of Christ's life, from the very end. So with that context, let us hear the gospel proclaimed from John chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. Listen for the word of God this day, and may God bless to us this reading and our understanding of it. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks indeed for your word. We ask your blessing upon this time, our hearing of it. May our thoughts direct us more closely toward you. Amen. I've learned that I have some peculiar interests. And the only way I've really learned that is by sharing my interests and realizing that not all share them. Uh, And that's what makes them peculiar. Among my many strange interests, one of my favorite things to do is go on tours. Wherever I am, I enjoy going on tours of just about everything, especially behind-the-scenes tours, from breweries to office buildings to stadiums when they're built new. I've toured cruise ships, distilleries, even the Jelly Belly and Hershey's factories. I wonder what tours you've been on. Tours. They're designed to give us a peek into a world that we wouldn't otherwise see. Now, as much as I love all sorts of tours, those behind-the-scenes ones, especially tours related to the manufacture of things, related to products and how they're made, those tours are my favorite. We know the product that they're making. We know the product that they will create. 
and we might even have an idea of how they're going to create it. I mean, I've toured probably 25 distilleries and as many breweries, and I could almost make the whiskey or the beer on my own, and yet I'm still a sucker to go see that tour again. And there are a few reasons for this. First, I forget. I forget how it's done. I forget how the steps work. But second, they're all a little bit different. They're a little different, and I'd like to go back and see how did someone do something in a way that's different from someone else, in different ways. The third, though, is my favorite part, samples. Tours always have samples. Whether it's rum or chocolate or jelly bellies, there's always a sample waiting at the end. A connection to what they've shown me, right? What I've seen and experienced, and also something to make me want a little bit more. It's a foreshadowing, but it's also an experience in the moment. Our gospel text this morning is sort of like a moment on a tour. When the tour guide gathers everyone and pauses, perhaps at some spot along the way, and they take a moment before the tour ends and they tell us where we've been. They take us back maybe even to something we saw along the way, something at the beginning or something along the tour that we might not have otherwise noticed. Or something where we might not have understood the importance in the moment without having the full picture of the process. It reminds me of a suspenseful book or movie where it turns out that that seemingly unimportant fact at the start of the tale was key to the unfolding drama. This morning in our church life, we celebrate the seventh Sunday of Easter. It's the last Sunday of our Easter season. A few weeks ago, I greeted you all with the traditional Easter greeting of he is risen, and I saw a little bit of pause among people because they wanted to tell me that Easter was several weeks ago, right? You did ultimately respond. But Easter has been going for the last 49 days. Easter in our church, in our tradition, is not one day. This, today, is our last Sunday of Easter. And while not all of our preaching this Easter season has come from the traditional texts for these weeks, this morning we've returned to the gospel text that is assigned to this day. I want to take a moment first, though, and talk about Easter, this season of Easter, and why the season matters. In contrast to Lent, so leading up to Easter, we had several weeks of Lent. In Easter, the church is called to celebrate a season of joy, a season of great joy. In fact, in the early church, kneeling, fasting, and other acts that are seen associated uh, with mourning or with penitence were forbidden during Easter. I think this is fascinating. They built into the rules of the church, the practices of the church, a prohibition against not feeling joy during Easter. It's amazing to me. The structures of the church, everything from our colors that we wear in our, uh, in our vestments to the hymns that we choose, the music, all of it is intended to reflect this season. It's interesting to me because this season then becomes guided by human emotion as well. 
We're invited to experience the breadth and the depth of the human experience so that even if we're not feeling those emotions ourselves in our present lives, we still experience them as the church. Similar to our penitent experience of Lent, when we connect through liturgy with those who are experiencing loss or mourning, during Easter there becomes a liturgical motivation toward seeking joy in the midst of our own struggle where joy might not feel remotely close. So here we are, the end of our Easter season, this end of a season of celebration and joy, and our text, strangely, takes us back to a time that feels an eternity before Easter. It's a return to those final days, those final moments before Jesus would be arrested. And he's gathered with his closest friends. And they're sitting with him, and they've been with him. But they're sitting with him in this moment, and he starts to pray. This prayer comes at the end of a much larger passage from John's Gospel. It's a few chapters long, and it's referred to as the Farewell Discourse. These chapters are the end of Jesus' life and ministry, and in many ways, he's giving instructions to his friends. But really, he's saying goodbye. He's saying goodbye to those he has loved, he has walked alongside, and sometimes the disciples realize it, but other times they don't. He's told them so many times throughout the Gospels that he's going to die, and they don't accept it. They push back on Jesus. And don't we all do this sometimes, right? We will things away a little bit, but Jesus doesn't relent. And here he prays in those final days. And he's saying goodbye. Like you and me, the early readers and hearers of John's gospel were not alive when Jesus was alive. They're dependent upon John as their tour guide in order for them to know this Jesus and to better understand God. And the gift of this morning's text is that it gives us a glimpse a behind-the-scenes look into the prayer life of Jesus. And I want to acknowledge that there's a lot in this text. It was a long text, a long passage, and there were a lot of words in there. And you may have noticed that. You may need to go back to it. And I know this can be confusing, but instead of getting lost in all of those words, let's take a look more closely at a couple of the key ingredients in this prayer of Jesus. First, Jesus is praying for others. He's praying for his friends, for the disciples. And they know this because they're right there with him. They've been gathered with him, and in this moment, he's praying with them. He hasn't gone off to some hiding place. He's not praying in secret or alone. Jesus is with his friends, and he's very specific. He's very specific in his prayers for them. And he's specific in his love for them. This moment with his friends comes just a short time before Jesus will die. And his prayer in that moment 
is focused not on his own suffering, not on his own anxiousness, not even on the things that will come. Jesus is focused on the ones he will leave behind. This is powerful. And this is even more powerful because I am confident that Jesus is praying in these words for you and for me. Jesus is praying these words for God's children, for us. Jesus knows that we will need to be prayed for. Specifically, Jesus knows that we'll need this prayer. This prayer in which Jesus prays that we would come to a knowledge of God. Did you hear that in the text? He prays that we'd come to a knowledge of God. What a wonder it is that the creator of the universe would desire that you and me would know God and know God more deeply. Think about the things you know for a moment. Knowledge perhaps you've obtained through studying or through experiences of life. Think about what it takes to gain knowledge typically in our lives. We kind of have to do something or be around someone. It requires some level of obedience and also some desire to follow. It requires some effort typically. Obtaining knowledge is something that we've come in life to hopefully be able to be at a point where we can understand somewhat how to do it. And Jesus prays that you and I would have knowledge of God. And when we have knowledge of God, Jesus knows that our only response will be to live in a way that brings glory to God, that we would live as God would have us live. Indeed, the only response to knowing God, the only response that's possible to actually knowing God is for us to seek to love. If we know God, we will seek love. In the letter of 1 John, toward the end there of the New Testament, the writer puts it this way in another familiar text. You may have heard these words. He writes, Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God, does not love, does not know God, for God is love. I'll say that again. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is one of the most unvague scriptures in the Bible. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And so knowledge of God, this knowledge of God that Jesus is praying for is so intimately tied to our human response of love. And in loving, in living out the love for which God designed us, it is then that we reflect God into the world, that we show others that we have that knowledge of God. But Jesus knows he knows in that prayer, he knows that our world isn't a place where love comes easy. 
This is precisely why he's praying this prayer for his disciples and for us. Jesus knows that the world, the same world that he is about to face, the world that is going to kill him, the world that is somehow at the same time the same world that God created, Jesus knows that the world is often seemingly in opposition to the love that is from God. And the cruel reality is that is that that opposition often comes from within us ourselves and from within others whom God loves and even others who desire to know and love God. Indeed, we need protection, not just from the obvious sources of opposition to God, but even sometimes from ourselves. But why does Jesus pray so earnestly for us to have knowledge of God. Jesus says this, the knowledge of God, this is eternal life. The knowledge of God is eternal life. This is that quest, that desire, the reassurance, the comfort, the promise of something better, the place without tears, the life beyond suffering, This is eternal life, knowledge of God. How many times have you heard eternal life described that way, explained that way? That knowledge of God is eternal life. And yet this is exactly what Jesus says multiple times in this prayer, in this passage. And so we must ask ourselves then, how are we seeking to know God? And before we laugh it off and dismiss the possibility, because I'm tempted to do that, right? A little bit. Knowledge of God, knowledge of the unknowable, knowledge of the unfathomable. How can I be the one to find that knowledge? But before we write that off, we have to revisit the assurance way back at the beginning of John's gospel in one of the most familiar and quoted scriptures, John 3.16. You've heard this, you've heard this before, in which the gospel writer tells us that God's love for the world is so great that whoever believes in God would have what? Eternal life. It's God who grants that eternal life. And if the knowledge of God is eternal life, then who is granting us the knowledge of God, that unattainable, otherwise unattainable knowledge? Who but God? The one who desires that eternal life for us is the same God who desires that we would have the knowledge of God. And so how do we do that? How do we allow ourselves to be used by God as ones who experience God's knowledge? It happens when we have love, when we see love, when we experience it. John has given us the ingredients, the ingredients to be the body of Christ and the ingredients to have eternal life. And friends, The recipe is straightforward. And Jesus prays for us that we would bring these ingredients together and in doing so, that we would know God. 
And he also prays that we would find unity. He says, protect them so that they may be one as we are one. What is this unity, though? Jesus says he wants humans, humanity, to be one as we, Jesus and the Father, are one. So what does that look like? John's Gospel opens with some very poetic language, which I find both confusing and intriguing and beautiful, all at the same time. Again, you're probably familiar with these words. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. My first reaction is always to say, with God or was God? Which one is it? And yet this is where the mystery of trying to understand what the unity of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit looks like, right? This is what what Jesus is praying for, that we would experience unity like God has unity with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so if we're going to understand what it means for us as a church to have unity, us as a people to have unity, then we might first look to this mysterious relationship of God. I read that the relationship between God the Father and God the Son can be described like a dance. Early theologians looked at the relationship between Jesus as God and God as being a movement, an interweaving between the two. And so what if this call to unity, not a call for all of us to be the same, Jesus is not praying that we would all look alike or act alike or think alike. But rather, maybe this call to unity is a call to this dance, this movement, this interweaving of you and me, this interweaving of each of us so that we can bring all of us together, all of us together in a mosaic that reflects God, that points to God. It helps others come to more of a knowledge of God. And the good news is that there's room for each of us in this dance. There's room for you. There's room for you whether this is your first time in this place or again, if this is your 400th time. There's room for those who have never set foot in this place with us. There is room. There's room in the dance. Here in the community at Pinnacle, there's room for you to bring all of who you are. All of who you are. Your questions, your fears, your joy, your sorrow, all of who you are into this dance that shows us glimpses in one another of the image of God. The image of God made manifest in each one of us. And so as we continue to seek to build community in the church, as we seek to live in unity, we do this again knowing that this is what Christ desires of us and what Christ desires for us. And so our Easter tour comes to an end. And I've promised that every tour takes us where we've been, gives us some ingredients, and shows us something new. But every tour also includes 
a sample, a treat, something to remind us of the experience, something to point us forward to the future. When we gather for worship, when we gather for worship, we experience that taste, that taste of that eternal life that God has promised to us. It's our opportunity to have a taste of what it means to experience the knowledge of God, to experience what God intends for us to be out in the world. We practice here, we experience here, we sample it here so that we might go out thirsty, thirsty for love. And that's the invitation of Christ, isn't it? The invitation that we might have even brief moments or glimpses of that knowledge of God and that we might then live into that knowledge. Live into that knowledge as we seek to bring love into the world. Because once you've tasted that sample, you need more. It's who we're wired to be. It's who we're designed to be. And our sample today, our sweet treat, is a preview of our eternal life with God. That reassurance that Jesus is praying for you. That Jesus is praying for us. That we can pray for one another. And that we can be unified in Christ and engage in the glorious dance of living our lives. Living lives that bring glory to God and bring love into the world. Friends, our sweet treat comes when we sing with one another. When we eat and fellowship with one another. And even when we stick around after an event at church and do the dishes with one another. This is living into the kingdom of God. Our sweet treat comes in all of these things that make us the church, that make us Christ's church. Jesus didn't come to create a religion. Jesus came to show us a glimpse of the kingdom of God. And we've created this as our best attempt to do that. And this, my friends, is the invitation to be in community with one another. And it's an invitation to a foretaste of the glory of God's eternal realm. And God wants nothing more. Nothing more for us than to have that sweet treat. For it comes with the beginning of that knowledge of God, which is eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.